0: Pastor Greg and I over at Blessings are doing a special Lent series on the seven sayings of the cross or the seven last words of Jesus. We're titling this series Dying Words. There are, as I said, seven of them, four of which are addressed to those around the cross, three of which are addressed to God the Father. The very first is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing, and then This morning, we're going to consider the second word, which is addressed to those closest to Jesus, namely the criminal on the cross beside him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Several years ago, I was at Campfire Bible Camp, and I was just reading through Genesis, and I came to Genesis 40, and I discovered some very interesting echoes in Genesis 40 of The very passage that we're going to consider this morning from Luke 23, where you have Jesus situated between the two criminals in Genesis 40. There are also three individuals. There's Joseph, there's the cupbearer, and the baker. And very interestingly, Jesus says to the cupbearer, remember me when you are released from prison, and help me to get out of prison. And then, of course, at the very end of the passage, you read that the cupbearer did not remember Jesus. So an echo of the passage that we're going to consider from the New Testament, some important similarities and some very important differences as well. So I invite you uh, first, if you are able to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 40, you're always uh, free to read the text as it is projected above me. We're going to read the entire chapter, it's not too long, and then be attentive to the story here because uh, it is in some ways a mirror and in some ways the opposite of what we will read from the New Testament, Genesis 40. Sometime later, the cupbearers and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came in to see them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, "'Why do you look so sad today?' We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I've nothing to deserve I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation he said to Joseph I too had a dream on my head were 3 baskets of bread in the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head This is what it means Joseph said the 3 baskets are 3 days within 3 days Pharaoh will lift up your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once again he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them, In his interpretation the chief cupbearer however did not remember Joseph he forgot him let's now uh, turn to the text for the message this morning from the gospel of Luke chapter 23 gospel of Luke chapter 23 and we're going to begin our reading at verse 39 And read to verse 43, and of course, the second saying of Jesus on the cross, his second dying word, if you will, is found in verse 43. Luke 23, beginning at verse 39. One of the criminals who hung their hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? You will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. At this moment, our dear Father, we pray that your Spirit would attend us so that the words that we hear are not merely sounds in our ears so that the word that we hear is a power among us a means that you use to change us we know this morning father that there are many people who read scripture listen to scripture and don't discern the message in scripture and we admit this morning that we are feeble and frail people, even distorted. And so we need your presence and your power and your spirit. We ask, therefore, that you would enlighten our minds to understand, illumine our hearts to receive, transform us through the gospel today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the drama that unfolds at Calvary there's not one cross but three crosses there is not one victim but three victims and it's part of the scandal of the cross that Jesus is crucified alongside of two criminals it's more than simply the scandal of the cross it's God's script for the cross Isaiah prophesied he was numbered among the transgressors. And the Roman soldiers had given Jesus the position of honor, placing him on the center cross with a criminal to his left and a criminal to his right. They understood he was the king of the Jews. And kings have important people to their left and to their right. Three individuals One criminal only mocks and never believes, remains unrepentant. The other criminal moves from hostility to faith and is given entrance into paradise. And in between stands Jesus, who's the object of the one's trust and the object of the other's mockery. Three individuals, But one is the protagonist, one is the main actor, and that's, of course, Jesus. And whenever we read through the Gospels, not least scenes around the cross, we need to be attentive to what Jesus is doing. And what we see Jesus doing in this passage is opening paradise for a repentant criminal through his death. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. First of all, the criminal's rebuke. And secondly, the criminal's request, and thirdly, the criminal's reward. Jesus opens paradise for a repentant criminal through his death. We'll see the criminal's rebuke, his request, and his reward. Who precisely are these individuals alongside of whom Jesus is crucified? Matthew and Mark identify them as robbers, and Luke it's simply evildoers or criminals. These were violent thieves. These were people who would not hesitate to take someone's life to get what they wanted. The word in Matthew and Mark is sometimes translated rebel or bandit. These were hardened criminals, pirates, gangsters, mobsters, people with an extraordinary resume of evil. And the Romans prescribed crucifixion for such offenders. The Romans never crucified people who occupied high positions in society. The Romans never criticized, crucified their own citizens. The express purpose of crucifixion in the Roman Empire was to convey that those being crucified did not belong to the human race, were not part of the human species, they were less than human scum. And the scorn and the mockery and the ridicule that would occur at the scenes of crucifixions was not simply permitted by the Roman Empire. It was encouraged. It was part of the spectacle. It was part of the theater to help convey to everyone that these were monsters to contribute to the dehumanization, the degradation of human beings. And the two... Criminals alongside of whom Jesus was crucified participated initially at least in that mockery and ridicule. They joined the choruses of the crowds in mocking Jesus until one decides he's going to expend some of his remaining energy to mock Jesus in his own way. And he says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He knows a little theology. He knows that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He issues a prayer of sorts. Jesus, save us. He's unconcerned with his own sins. He's concerned about the consequences of his sins. He wants to be freed from those consequences. Jesus, save us. Now, it seems to me this morning that there are a lot of people in this camp they live their life without regard for God they do not think about God they do not believe they are accountable to God but in the face of global tragedy they ask the question why isn't God doing something in the face of personal tragedy they say please God help me and that's the plight of this one criminal he had ignored Jesus And after ignoring him, he had decided to mock him and scorn him. And now he betrays a sudden interest in Jesus. Jesus, if you are the Messiah, save us. And then he's rebuked by the other criminal, the other thug. This is the stuff of television drama. Two individuals with nothing left to do but die and the one turns on the other. The one who rebukes had rebuked like the first criminal for some time, and then he became silent. And he simply watched Jesus, observed him, listened to him. He was attentive to Jesus. He noticed that Jesus, when he was mocked, did not Mock back. He noticed that Jesus did not curse the executioner, so common for the victims of crucifixions. He noticed that Jesus prayed for his executioner's Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And I imagine he thought to himself, This is what I need more than anything else. This is what I need at this moment forgiveness. When this criminal opens his mouth, again, it's to silence his partner in crime, his fellow thug. Don't you fear God? Don't you, in these circumstances, so close to death, so evil a man, don't you fear God? This is a hardened criminal. This is someone who didn't fear people. This is an individual who was willing to take somebody's life to obtain what he wanted. There was nothing that people could do to him at this point that they hadn't already done, but don't you fear God. I imagine it's because the criminal rebuking had begun to fear God. He'd begun to wonder what it would mean to meet up with God as judge. He'd begun to think about that moment when he would have to stand before God with his resume of evil, looking back on his life, all the crimes that he had done. And I imagine that his body, though nailed to the cross, began to quiver. Don't you fear God? And this man, as you can see from the text, makes two very important observations recognizes two things so important for us to recognize as well he recognizes first of all his own plight we are deserving of this punishment we are being punished justly we are getting what our deeds deserve he doesn't bluster he doesn't make excuses he doesn't soft pedal his sin He recognizes his condition, but he does more. He also recognizes who Jesus is and the condition of Jesus. This man has done nothing wrong. This man is undeserving of this punishment. He's undeserving of the the ridicule, the scorn, the mockery. He's undeserving of the charges. He exonerates Jesus. He sees something about himself. He is a sinner. He sees something about Jesus. He is innocent. Aren't these the two most important things for us to see, for us to understand who we are and who Jesus is? And do you see yourself this morning as a sinner who's deserving of judgment? And do you see Jesus as the one who is entirely innocent, not deserving of punishment? And I imagine that this criminal on the cross began to pose the question, why is this man, innocent as he is, like the Lamb of God without stain or wrinkle, why is this man, innocent as he is, suffering, suffering? He has done no wrong. We are the ones deserving of death. And I suspect he began to conclude, getting a theological education there on the cross, that perhaps Jesus was in fact suffering for others. That perhaps Jesus, that, uh, Jesus was in fact suffering for him. That perhaps he was dying so that others might live. So that's the rebuke. Don't you fear God? With those two important recognitions, who he is, who Jesus is. Then we see, secondly, his request. Something remarkable had happened, of course, in the heart of this criminal. I imagine that if his hands were free at this moment, he would have been reaching out to Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom he was familiar with the teaching of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, he preached about the kingdom of heaven. He knew that in Jesus, this kingdom had arrived. He knew that through Jesus, this kingdom would be perfected. He knew something about the ministry of Jesus. And just as the, the darkness of Golgotha begins to set in, the light goes on. In the heart of this hardened criminal, this thug, this mobster, this gangster. Just as his eyes are about to close in death, they are opened to life in Christ. He begins to see Jesus for who he is as the king with authority and power to defeat the power of evil and to provide forgiveness. And he has one opportunity to speak. And he makes a very humble request. Jesus, remember me. He doesn't pretend that he has a right to enter into the kingdom. Jesus, remember me. You know, in the Psalms you sometimes find psalmist crying out to God, remember me. And when a psalmist cries out to God, remember me, he's asking God to do something for him. And it's precisely what's happening here. In fact, it's what Joseph was doing with the cupbearer in Genesis 40, do something for me. Jesus, here I am about to die. Can you do something for me before the Father who is Judge? Can you be my defense attorney? Can you be my advocate? Remember me when you become king. He has one opportunity to speak to Jesus. How many opportunities do you have? Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't say, as we're so inclined to say, tomorrow I'll make amends. Tomorrow I'll get my life in order. Tomorrow I'll make the changes necessary. It can wait. I'm going to do the right thing. Not today, but tomorrow. But tomorrow you might not have a chance. And tomorrow you might find yourself as callous as the other criminal on the cross who did not repent. And so we have to say, as this criminal does today Jesus, remember me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Well, that's the request that the criminal makes thirdly reward that he received. Jesus responds to his request, verse forty-three, I tell you the truth, and the Greek Amen. A word that Jesus so often used and here for the last time uses it again. Truly I tell you. I speak to you, my dear friend, with the authority of a prophet. What I say you can bank on. Truly I tell you, today You'll be with me in paradise. You have to understand that Jesus' response to the criminal was so much more than the criminal had ever imagined. The criminal had said, whenever, and Jesus said, today. The criminal had said, when you enter into your kingdom, Jesus said, no, no, not kingdom, paradise. The criminal makes a humble request and was saved. Isn't it the most remarkable thing? Jesus doesn't say, I need to see a little bit more. A few more tears. More of a confession. More suffering. More obedience. I need to see just a little bit more. Jesus looks at the man and says, I've seen enough. I've heard enough. Today you will be with me in paradise. Why did Jesus promise this? He was dying. His hands were nailed to the cross as were his feet. This man just moments earlier had mocked him. How could Jesus do this? This was a thug. This was a criminal. This is an individual who took innocent lives. This was someone who abused people, who mistreated people, image bearers of God, was rude to exactly those kinds of people for whom Jesus cared so much. Why would Jesus bother with him? Some last minute appeal to his mercy. He is Vladimir Putin. What's going on here? I've heard Ukrainians say the Russians will never be forgiven. I can never, ever forgive the Russians. And if you look down your noses on the Ukrainians this morning for saying that you have no sense of pity or empathy, no recognition of the extraordinary abuse that these Ukrainians have endured. Your daughter's been killed, your father's been killed, your city's been destroyed, your livelihood has been taken away, your building with all of your memorabilia, your photo albums, your prized possessions, just destroyed. I can never forgive the Russians. Today, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. Why did he say that? What if the man had been Vladimir Putin? Wouldn't that have been a moral atrocity? Vladimir Putin, moments before he dies, hey Jesus, remember me. Today, Putin, you'll be with me in paradise. There is something atrocious I'm telling you about criminals being forgiven. And as a pastor whose pastored people who've been the objects of extraordinary mistreatment at the hands of others, I understand it full well. I have difficulty being in heaven with perpetrators of crime who are forgiven, who obtain a -a get-out-of-jail-free card. Isn't there something repulsive, something ugly about what Jesus does here? And I think we need to see this morning that Jesus doesn't simply forgive. He doesn't simply accept. That's a small fraction of what's happening here. We need to attend to what Jesus says. Those words are so important. We need to attend to what Jesus is doing here. We need to attend to what Jesus has done to the pathway that led up to this cross. He made his way to Calvary, didn't he? Carrying the cross on his shoulders. Then being nailed to that cross, despised and rejected by people, everyone, his own disciples, left with no one. And in this God forsaken, inhuman moment, where all the dark powers of evil convene in Jerusalem and unleash all their powers on him, Jesus suffers. as the representative for sinners enduring condemnation entering into a pain infinitely greater than though the pain of the criminals alongside of him entering into pain infinitely greater than you or I in the worst of circumstances will ever experience What you see in the horror of the crucifixion and the agony of the cross, which is in fact the agony of hell, you see God's justice and God's condemnation on evil, even of the darkest sort, so much so that it would be impossible for us to say that Jesus doesn't take evil seriously. He doesn't take abuse, crime, atrocities lightly because he's experiencing the worst of it all from the most powerful dark forces that corrupt humanity to which we are accomplices with which we are too often participants. This is the Son of God, you see, paying the ransom. This is the Son of God storming the gates of hell. This is the Son of God crossing the Red Sea and drowning the enemy. This is the Son of God breaking the power of evil, dealing with the power of evil, atrocities of the worst order. The Roman Catholic theologian Hans Kung writes Nowhere did it become more evident than at the cross that this God is in fact on the side of the weak, sick, poor, underprivileged, oppressed. Then listen, even of the irreligious, immoral, and ungodly. And if you ask me this morning, doesn't God have a preferential option for the victim? I say yes, absolutely. Absolutely. God is a preferential option for the, wicked, for the uh, victim. And if you ask me this morning, does God have a preferential option for the perpetrator? I say yes, God even has a preferential option for the perpetrator victim and perpetrator. This criminal, we can be sure, never received a grave. I suspect no one came to retrieve his body. He was a monster. He was an embarrassment to his own family. His body would have been add it to a pile of corpses for the animals and birds to pick at. That's That's what was done with the victims of crucifixion. Bodies left in public, these monsters, less than human scum. And we want people to see the birds and the animals picking at them. And yet when he died he went to paradise to be with Jesus. When you think about the day that this man had, breakfast with the devil and dinner with Jesus, found in the morning guilty before earth's bar of justice and by evening acquitted at heaven's bar, Left earthly Jerusalem that morning, never to return. That night, entered the heavenly Jerusalem, never to leave. All in one day. In one day. The repentant criminal, you see, is one of the most memorable characters in the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Who will never be forgotten because he was saved at the 11th hour at the final moment and I'm quite sure that his story is included so that no one no liar no adulterer no murderer no dictator no tyrant no Putin should ever despair no matter what he or she has done, no matter how long he or she has done it, no matter what the situation, no matter what the time, the stories include included so that no one should ever despair because despair is exactly what we do. And we say, my sin is too great to be forgiven My sins are too numerous to be forgiven. My sin is too serious to be forgiven. It's too late for me to be forgiven. And Jesus rejects the logic, doesn't he? It's never too late. Sins never too serious. Never commit it for too long. I think we need to, as we begin to conclude, see Jesus on the cross. And be attentive to him in exactly the way that this repentant criminal was. Listen to those words that he speaks and meditate on them. Father, forgive them to his executioners, perpetrating the the most heinous crime ever committed in the history of humanity. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If they had known, they would not have crucified. The Lord of glory, Paul says. He prays for forgiveness for those who execute him. And he opens paradise for terrorists, mobsters, gangsters, thugs, pirates, hardened criminals with a resume of evil upon a simple word. You see, the cross of Jesus divides humanity, doesn't it? On the one side of the cross, there are those who only mock Jesus and never repent and die in their sins. And on the other side, there are those, also criminals, also evildoers, who see themselves for who they really are. Sinful people deserving of judgment, and see Jesus for who he is one innocent, dying in fact for others, wounded so that others might be healed, dying so that others might live, and repenting and saying, Jesus. Have mercy on me. And so, my question for you is on what side of the cross are you today? Let's pray together. Our dear Lord, it's not easy for us to read about the scene of the cross. And think about the horrific suffering that your son endured. Not merely physical pain, not merely the ridicule of people, not merely the abandonment of friends and family, not merely the isolation, not merely the thirst, not merely the hunger. but the conspiracy of the dark powers of evil against him, unleashing all of their forces on him. The abandonment of the father with whom he had this close relationship. And all for this reason, to see us declared innocent to see broken people restored to see a fractured creation mended to ensure that the future is not wilderness but paradise lord enable us this morning to be on the right side of the cross in Jesus name amen